We turn this morning to 1 Corinthians 5 and 1 Corinthians 11 in connection with the questions in the Heidelberg Catechism about who may come to the Lord's Supper. I'd like to read 1 Corinthians 5 and then turn to chapter 11. So we hear the word of the Lord. <clears throat> Excuse me. 1 Corinthians 5 at verse 1. The apostle writes to a church that's, well, it has a lot of problems, but it comes with the instruction and grace of the Lord. 1 Corinthians 5, 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. And such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife. And you are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. For I indeed, as absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged as though I were present him who has done, who has so done this deed." In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore, purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people, yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world, or with the covetous, or extortioners, or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I've written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral, or covetous, or an idolater, or a reviler, or a drunkard, or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person." For what have I to do with judging those also who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? But those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. And then turning to chapter 11, as the Apostle Paul in chapters 10 and 11 instructs about the Lord's Supper, we want to pick it up at 1 Corinthians 11 verse 17, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 17. Now, in giving these instructions, I do not praise you, since you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and in part I believe it. 
For there must also be factions among you that those who are approved may be recognized among you. Therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others. And one is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. For I receive from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, The cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord, that we may not be condemned with the world. Therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. But if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, lest you come together for judgment. And the rest I will set in order when I come. God's holy word. Let's take out the Forms and Prayers book and read two questions and answers there. Page 234 in the Forms and Prayers book. We've been studying the sacraments, baptism, and the Lord's Supper. And at the conclusion of the study of the Lord's Supper, it's asked... Who should come to the Lord's table? I will read the questions and answers to you this morning. Page 234 at the bottom, question 81 asks, Who should come to the Lord's table? And the answer is, Those who are displeased with themselves because of their sins, but who nevertheless trust that their sins are pardoned, and that the remaining weakness is covered by the suffering and death of Christ, and who also desire more and more to strengthen their faith and to lead a better life. Hypocrites and those who are unrepentant, however, eat and drink judgment on themselves. Then question 82, should those be admitted to the Lord's Supper, who show by what they profess and how they live that they are unbelieving and ungodly, No, that would dishonor God's covenant and bring down God's wrath upon the entire congregation. Therefore, according to the instruction of Christ and his apostles, the Christian church is duty-bound to exclude such people by the official use of the keys of the kingdom until they reform their lives. Let's bow together before the Lord and ask him for his help, shall we? O gracious God in heaven, we come before the wonder of the supper and the holiness of our God. We come before weighty matters. We do ask, Lord, for your saving grace 
that your word would be preached in the way pleasing to you, and that you'd give us the soft hearts to receive it, and that in hearing who you are, what you require of us, we might not run from you, but all the more to you. So grant this, Lord, we pray, even in these next moments, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, saints of God, the Lord's Supper is a tremendous blessing, isn't it? That, that our covenant Lord gives to us a covenant meal. He gives to us the sacraments by which he wants to testify to the reality of his promises and his love for us. It's an amazing thing that, that our living God condescends to us to, to share a meal with us. And that Christ comes as a host to, by the bread and wine pointing to his promises to assure us that his body was broken for the complete forgiveness of our sins. It's a great gift. It's a great meal. But, as we're reminded this morning, it's not a casual meal. It's not to be eaten in casualness. It's to be eaten with joy and with gladness. But we are to be careful with it. The holiness of the meal is brought to our minds this morning. An illustration from church history regarding one who understood the holiness of the meal comes down from the 1500s. You know the name of John Calvin, a a father of the Reformed, right? Born in 1509, but he served as a pastor, was compelled to serve there in Geneva on the edge of France and Switzerland, compelled by William Farrell, a pastor there whom he also served with. And Calvin, through his preaching and teaching there, was used mightily of the Lord to bring about reformation in that city, but there remained a good bit of wickedness. Now, if you've read anything by John Calvin, you know he was consumed with the majesty and the glory of God. And there remained in Geneva, among the sins, this group called the Libertines who thought they had license to live in sexual morality and yet to be members of the church and come to the Lord's table. And there came this crisis when one of these influential libertines, Berthelier, was denied the Lord's Supper by the elders. They barred him. They said, you may not come to the Lord's table. But he appealed against the church eldership to the town council, to the civil magistrate. And the civil magistrate overruled the elders and said, he may come to the table. Well, this created a great crisis. Not just for this issue, but whether it would be discipline in the church, what would happen to the Lord's table, and so forth. And Calvin, John Calvin, could not, could not be persuaded, would not be moved to serve the loved Lord's Supper to anyone in that condition. Well, the day before the Lord's Supper was to be administered, the city council gathered for a special meeting, and Calvin came to plead that they'd reconsider their decision. He spoke with great power and trembling. He said, I swear rather to die than to have the Lord's Supper defiled. I would rather be dead a hundred times than to commit such terrible mockery to Christ as to serve Bertha Lear. Well, the town council did not relent in allowing him to come to the Lord's Supper. The next morning, Sunday morning, the exhausted John Calvin climbed up into the pulpit. And the news of this turmoil and this conflict had spread throughout the whole city. So the whole sanctuary was filled. Every seat was taken and the people waited with intensity to see what would happen here in this worship service. Many expected the libertines would force their way up to the Lord's table, take that bread and wine. After a powerful sermon, Calvin said, I asked that God would give me firmness and my prayer was answered. 
Therefore know that whatever may occur, I shall act according to the clearly revealed command of my master. Should there be anyone during the Lord's Supper, which we are about to celebrate, approaching the table of the Lord who has been denied this privilege by the elders, I shall take the stand that is required of me. And then the congregation quietly watched as the weak and frail Calvin descended from the pulpit to the Lord's table below. And according to Henry Henderson, this is how the drama unfolded. He writes, The sermon had been preached, the prayers had been offered, and Calvin descended from the pulpit to take his place beside the elements at the communion table. The bread and wine were duly consecrated by him, and he was now ready to distribute them to the communicants. Then a sudden rush was begun by the troublers in Israel in the direction of the communion table. It seemed as if they aimed at snatching up the bread and cup in their hand. Calvin flung his arms around the sacramental vessels as if to protect them from sacrilege, while his voice rang through the building. These hands you may crush, these arms you may lop off, my life you may take, my blood is yours, you may shed it. But you shall never force me to give holy thanks to the profane and dishonor the table of my God. According to... Beza, Calvin's first biographer, the sacrament was celebrated with extraordinary silence. There was a great awe in the assembly as if God himself had been visible. A remarkable tale. What a moment in the life of the church. The question was, would immoral people be seated at the table to partake of the elements while they opposed Christ? Or would the church stand for its right? This morning we consider the Lord's Supper as a holy feast. It's a holy feast to be enjoyed by the repentant. And it's a holy feast to be kept from the unrepentant. And those are our two points this morning. A holy feast to be enjoyed by the repentant. And a holy feast to be kept from the unrepentant. Well, this glorious meal of the Lord's Supper is indeed a holy feast. Because Paul says actually in 1 Corinthians 10 that it's a communion of the body of Christ. It's a communion of the blood of Christ. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in, a communion in the blood of Christ? And then Paul says in in 1 Corinthians 11, as we read, recounting the words of Jesus, that the cup of blessing which we bless is a communion of the blood of Christ. And this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Think of that. It's about a covenant relationship, isn't it? This Lord's Supper meal. Central to the Lord's Supper is is this relationship between the covenant Lord and his people in which he's bound himself to them. In which he said, I will be your God and you shall be my people. And, And the nature of the covenant relationship is what? Well, it's an exclusive relationship. There's a a fence around it. There's a bond. Maybe you've driven by one of those exclusive neighborhoods. There's one over by the coast, that peninsula that sticks out, whatever it's called, and there's homes on it. One time I wanted to just drive the street, but they wouldn't let me through the gate. it's It's a gated community. You are not welcome here. You have to have permission to enter here. Well, The covenant relationship with God and his people is special, right? It's restricted. 
The only way in is through faith and repentance, but no enemies are welcome there. Or you could compare it to a marriage relationship. A marriage is exclusive, right? For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother to be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one. And there's a fence around that. No third party may intrude. It's an exclusive relationship. Well, the same is the case in our covenant marriage with God. We must be devoted to him alone. Paul actually says earlier in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 21, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and of the table of demons. Or are you trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy, he says. The Lord is a jealous God in the right sense, right? We're grateful when husbands are rightly jealous for wives and for children. They love them. They want to protect them. They want to keep them. God is a jealous God. And God is jealous in a glorious way as the Holy One. And those who come to share a meal with him, those who come into this meal of intimacy and communion must come as those who are devoted to him. Not fellowshipping with wickedness while they would fellowship with God. Not having, what did the prophets say, other lovers, false gods, why you come to worship this God. It's an exclusive bond. And you can't testify at the Lord's Supper that you find your life in Christ if you're actually finding your life in the pleasures of sin. I will be your God, and you will be my people. And so, we're to be careful as we come to the Lord's Supper. If it would be a great feast for us, a blessing to us, then Paul says, let us examine ourselves. 1 Corinthians 11. But let a man examine himself, verse 28, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who drink, eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the body. In the context, Paul's dealing with these problems in Corinth in which the congregation comes for the Lord's Supper, but there's great divisions and factions among them. They're not loving each other. The rich ones are apparently taking things ahead, having a great feast. The poor ones have nothing. And there's a, they're denying the very essence of the gospel as they partake of the Lord's Supper. And Paul says, you may not do that. Examine yourself. Do you love each other? Do you love the Lord? But from this text, we gain this broad principle that all of us are to examine ourselves concerning the whole of our life before the Lord God. We must, as he says in 1 Corinthians 5, we must keep the feast with sincerity and truth. In 1 Corinthians 5, he's not talking about the Old Testament Passover. He's not talking specifically about the Lord's Supper, but it has application to the whole of life. And therefore has application to the Lord's Supper. Let us keep the feast with sincerity and truth. Well, how do we do that? How do we examine ourselves? Paul actually says to the Corinthians that having failed to examine themselves, there's many among them who are weak and sick and some have even died. They have come under the chastening hand of God. We made it a practice in our Reformed churches to, to read a preparatory exhortation the week before the Lord's Supper because, because the meal is a holy meal and we, we want to deal with it in a careful way. 
But that Lord's Supper form reminds us there's three areas that we need to examine ourselves in. The catechism reminds us of the same thing here now. And these three areas are actually the same three parts of the catechism itself, the ABCs of the Christian life, sin, salvation, and service, right? Sin, salvation, and service. For whom is the Lord's Supper instituted? First of all, for those who are displeased with themselves because of their sins. That's first of all, right? Lord's Supper is not for the sinless. It's not for the perfect. It's not for those who are naturally healthy. It's for sinners, but, but a particular kind of sinner. Not the self-complacent sinner, but the sorrowful, the one who grieves his sin sinner. The first sign of a converted life is a sincere sorrow that we've provoked God by our sins. The hypocrite is unbothered by his sin, or if he's bothered by his sin, he's not bothered for the right reasons, right? He's bothered because he's disappointed himself, he's... He's not matched his own standard, lived up to what he wanted to be, or he's, he's grieved by the consequences of sin. It embarrassed him. It wrecked his marriage. It put him in prison. It made him lose his job. But what's central to true sorrow, according to the scriptures, is knowing our sin as an offense to the Lord, saying with David in Psalm 51, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me against you, You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. It's before your face. It's against my creator and my redeemer. I have sinned. I have offended you. I had a friend who, when we played one-on-one basketball, if I beat him, he would say, oh, I beat myself. (laughs) I thought it was such an insult. No, I beat you. I beat myself. But some people look at their sin that way, don't they? Oh, I didn't match my standard. I didn't live up to what I wanted to be. But, but the repentance says, Lord, I've sinned against you. We're called to humble ourselves before the face of God. Many have known their sin, like Cain and Saul and Judas. But in knowing sin, they didn't humble themselves before God. Those who are invited to the Lord's Supper, those who are grieved because of their sin, It's not that our grief or our sorrow is complete or perfect. None of, us, none of us knows our sin like we ought to know it, right? None of us understands how offensive our sin is. That rather than to leave it unpunished, God would give his own son. We don't grasp, do we, how, how awful our sin is. But by the grace of the Spirit, we do grieve our sin. And in humility, we come before the Lord. And coming with that humble, repentant heart, we are, we are welcomed by the Lord, right? Because the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. The high and holy one who dwells in eternity also dwells with the contrite and the humble, Isaiah says. So we come to this meal with the humility of repentance. We must examine ourselves in regard to that. But then there's a second thing but who nevertheless trust that their sins are pardoned and their remaining weakness is covered by the suffering and death of Christ. That's salvation, right? We need a knowledge of our deliverance. We need to come to the Lord's Supper believing that our Lord Jesus died for us to take away all our guilt. We don't come to the Lord's table to examining whether or not our faith is strong enough or good enough. Again, our faith is by no means perfect. 
But is our faith sincere? Do we look outside of ourselves and put our complete hope in the Lord Jesus? Do we come singing, not the labors of my hands can fulfill the law's demands? Do we come singing, nothing in my hands I bring simply to the cross I cling? That's all I have. That's my only righteousness. That's my only hope before the face of God is that Jesus bled for me. And then the third area, examining our commitment. The Catechism puts it like this, who also desire more and more to strengthen their faith and to lead a better life. If we would enjoy the feast, it must not only be those who grieve our sin, not only those who trust in Christ alone for our righteousness, but those who, in coming to the meal, say, Lord, I want to be fed and nourished so that I can become more like Christ. I want to receive the riches of your grace so that I can be empowered to serve you and to grow in this Christian life. Now, the hypocrite, you see, doesn't come to the table that way. The hypocrite just wants to come to receive some cover under which he can continue to sin. God in Jeremiah 7 says, Will you steal and murder and commit adultery and perjury and burn incense to Baal and follow other gods and then come and stand before me in my house, which bears my name, and say, We are safe. Safe to do all these detestable things. See, it doesn't fit, does it? If you draw near to God, then you have to truly want God and his glory and to be like God. When grace gets treated as a cheap thing, then God is not pleased. In this meal, we're giving thanks for the redemptive work of Christ. But how can we give thanks for the redemptive work of Christ if we don't really appreciate that we've been set free from the power of sin. But the sincere heart comes saying, Lord, draw me closer to you. Purge away my sin. Remake me and reshape me so I leave the table more like Christ. Let his life enter me so that truly I become what I eat. I'm filled with Christ and so shaped. My life is lived closer to you now, more for your glory. I bear greater fruit for you. That's what God's calling us to. Keep the feast. Purge out the old leaven. Get rid of the old sin. Come closer to Christ to rejoice in your Savior. And this includes, doesn't it, the summons to love our brothers and sisters, as Paul is urging that in 1 Corinthians 11, that we examine ourselves with regard to our commitment to the body. A commitment to Christ is a commitment to the church of Christ, that we would love each other, cherish each other, protect one another. And we're all to look at ourselves in regard to these things. Not at the person next to us, but at ourselves. We're to, we're to pray that God the Spirit by his word would search us and show us unconfessed sin who would lead us to himself. God is saying you need to ask yourself, who are you? Not, not in public. Who are you before people? What is your reputation? But God's asking, what are you on the inside? What are you when no one is looking? In a couple of weeks, we have opportunity, Lord willing, to celebrate the Lord's Supper again, come to this glorious meal, and if it would be a feast to us, a blessing to us, then we come with these kind of hearts.
humbled before God, grateful, believing on Christ. And so this summons to examine ourselves is not intended to so threaten us that we would never want to come to the table. There have been those who have felt that way, who are so burdened by the question about who may come to the Lord's Supper. They think it's best just to stay away altogether. I'm not worthy. But that also profanes the Lord's Supper because he's commanded us to come. He's commanded us to eat and drink. So the Lord's Supper form has it correct, doesn't it? When it says, this solemn warning is not designed, however, to discourage penitent sinners from coming to the Holy Sacrament. We do not come to the supper as though we are righteous in ourselves, but rather to testify that we are sinners and we look to Jesus Christ for our salvation. Although we do not have perfect faith and do not serve and love God with all our hearts, and though we do not love our neighbors as we ought, we are confident the Savior accepts us at his table and we come in humble faith, with sorrow for our sins, and with a will to follow him as he commands. It is a holy meal. But by the grace of God, you are a holy people. Set apart unto the Lord. And it's Christ's glorious pleasure to assure you at that table, to nourish you at that table, to bless you in glorious ways. So come. Come with that heart of faith. And come. It's a holy feast to be enjoyed by the repentant. But then secondly this morning, it's a holy feast to be kept from the unrepentant. And now we consider the truth that's summarized in question and answer 82. Should those be admitted to the Lord's Supper who show by what they profess and how they live that they are unbelieving and ungodly? And the first thing it says is, no, that would dishonor God's covenant. Or in older translations, that would profane God's covenant. That's what John Calvin was so concerned about in that episode I read to you, right? He was he's concerned about the mockery of Christ. That if somebody who's living as Berthelier was in obvious immorality is to partake of the Lord's Supper, then it's to treat the blood of Christ as a as a worthless thing, to trample the blood of Christ underfoot. Calvin would have no part of that. God will not be mocked, Paul says. Corinthians are coming under judgment. He's not saying they're coming under eternal condemnation. No, they, there's room for repentance. He's saying you're coming under chastisement so that you might repent. Turn back to your God. If the church openly tolerates those who are openly wicked, then it actually brings judgment on the rest of the church. That's what we confess in question answer 82. It's not just that those who are living in sin bring judgment upon themselves. But if the church allows the openly wicked to be served the Lord's Supper, then God's wrath is kindled against the whole congregation. We don't think too much about that in our American individualism, do we? But, but God deals with us as a people. 
He saves us as a church. He blesses us as a church. He chastises us also as a church. We stand and fall together. We have a corporate and communal responsibility. And if we tolerate unrepentant sin, even if it's not our own sin to begin with, once we willingly tolerate it, it becomes our sin. Think of the sin of Achan, who stole from the Lord, remember, in the book of Joshua? And then God's judgment fell on the whole army of Israel. If we aid and abet the Lord's enemy, the one who's living as an enemy, then we become guilty also. So Paul in 1 Corinthians 5 rebukes the Corinthians because there's a case of gross sexual immorality. And instead of dealing with it righteously, they go around boasting. We Corinthians are such a a modern people. We are so tolerant. We can, we can have this in our church. Paul says, you ought to be grieving. You should have been grieving over this and removing it. Confess, therefore, and, and answer 82. Therefore, according to the instruction of Christ and his apostles, the Christian church is duty-bound to exclude such people by the official use of the keys of the kingdom, until they reform their lives. We have a duty as a church to use the keys of the kingdom. And in the next uh, Lord's Day, the Catechism, it tells us what the keys are. It's the preaching of the gospel and it's church discipline. By these keys, the kingdom is opened and closed. And we have a duty to use those keys to prevent the ungodly from partaking of the Lord's table. To sit back and allow them to partake or to invite them to partake is to disrespect our God. It's to dishonor his covenant. It's, a, it's the equivalent of inviting, inviting a third party into your marriage. You defile your marriage if you do that. If we in this exclusive covenant relationship invite people in who are not coming in through the door of Jesus Christ by faith and repentance, then we defile the relationship. Now, the goal with the keys is always to lead people to repentance, right? That's the goal. Paul even says that in 1 Corinthians 5. Hand them over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so he can be saved in the day of the Lord. The goal is always salvation of the sinner, that the one might be converted and turned to the Lord for the first time or turned back to the Lord. We pray that for those who've never known the Lord, and we pray, don't we, for church members who have fallen away. But until they repent and show real amendment of life, they may not come. The Lord's Supper is a meal of reconciliation with God. And it would be an insult to the Lord of reconciliation to be one who's choosing sin while he's eating the Lord's meal. So the church must prohibit that. Now all of that sounds very strange to modern ears. Our culture obviously has no tolerance for any standard except, I guess, one of their own making. And this philosophy of individualism means that everyone has a right to do his own thing. Nobody has a right to tell me what to do. And some people are baffled and offended that elders would guard the Lord's table. G.I. Williamson in his, his uh, catechism book makes an interesting observation that, generally speaking, nobody expects us to administer baptism to them based on their own responsibility. 
I think he's right. I've never had anyone come to me off the street and just expect that they walk and I'm going to baptize them. Everyone assumes there's some standard. But strangely enough, with the Lord's Supper, it's exactly what people think. That if they walk through the doors, they have a right to the table. And there ought not to be any standard but their own. People get offended. Sometimes they get offended when they read our criteria in the bulletin about what's required, or they hear it announced maybe from the pulpit, or as is done in many URC churches, the elders interview people in the foyer, and if they want to partake of the Lord's Supper, visitors are asked to testify to their walk with Christ, to their baptism, their profession, and their membership in a faithful church. And sometimes people get upset and walk back out the door. They're offended. You'd even ask. But the church is to stand firm. For the sake of the Lord's honor and for the sake of the individual that somebody doesn't eat and drink judgment on themselves and for the sake of the faithfulness and safety of the church, lest we all come under God's judgment. I think it's a good thing that we've covenanted together as United Reformed Churches to a common church order that has this provision of Article 45 says in our church order that consistory shall supervise participation at the Lord's table. No member shall be admitted to the Lord's table who has not first made public profession of faith and is not living a godly life. And what about visitors? It says visitors may be admitted provided that as much as possible the consistory is assured of their biblical church membership, of their proper profession of faith, and of their godly walk. So the consistory, the elders, have a special role. The minister has a role to declare God's word, to declare the standard, to warn off those who don't believe, and to bring comfort to those who do believe on Christ. And the elders have a role to administer church discipline. The first step of official church discipline administered to the one who refuses and refuses to repent is to suspend them from the membership privileges, the Lord's Supper. In love, we don't want to allow people to dishonor God or to fool themselves. Now, the church can't judge hypocrites, right? Hypocrites wear a mask. And that's why we all must judge ourselves in that sense. If a hypocrite's doing all things that seem right, making the right confession, we can't see inside a heart. God deals with that. And we are called to examine ourselves. But in terms of outward ungodliness, whether of confession, what we believe, or how we're living, outward ungodliness is to be judged by the church. Our culture says you cannot judge. God says you must judge. And we get mixed up, as Paul speaks to the Corinthians, don't we? He says we're not judging those outside the church. Sometimes that's where we focus our attention. Paul says we judge those inside the church. Those who make profession of Christ, are they living in accordance with that profession? That's our calling as a church. And even in that, the goal again is not to destroy, but to restore. The prayer is that they might be rejoicing in heaven over one sinner that repents. But until that repentance, they must be excluded. So we have a responsibility as office bearers, but we also have a responsibility together as a congregation. And let me, let me point this out to you, brothers and sisters, that church discipline is your discipline. Elders are summoned to a task in our office to exercise this discipline in the name of the Lord, but they're doing this on behalf of the church. This preaching is your preaching. 
Church discipline is your discipline. And that means that not a single member of Christ's church is allowed to be indifferent if the true gospel is not being preached or if discipline is not being carried out. Every one of us is to be concerned about this for the glory of Christ and for the good of sinners and for the safety of the church. So we pray for our elders. We pray for the preaching. We encourage these things. And we have an interest in them. And we can help guard the Lord's table, every one of us, right? If we see a visitor come in, maybe we've already gotten to know the person a bit. Maybe we can be the one who can help point them in the bulletin to the criteria. can explain them to them in a, in a good way, in a cheerful way. This is a good thing. Or if, on the other hand, somebody sitting in the church is pretending to walk with Christ and come to the table, and we know they're living in open hostility to God. They are pursuing an ungodly course of life. Then we are not to be silent. We are responsible before the Lord for what goes on here at the table of the Lord. We love our Lord Jesus. His blood is precious to us. This meal is about his cross, and it will not be treated as a cheap thing if God will grant us to help it. And so John Calvin's demeanor is not to be some terribly foreign idea to us. What a crazy man. What was he so worked up about? But I think on the contrary, if we become jealous of the blood of Jesus, then it weighs upon us. God, help me to examine my heart and to come with the kind of heart that magnifies your name. And Lord, help us as a congregation to hold this meal in high honor so that it's not a despising of the Savior, but it's the glorifying of his name. Would doing these things make us an odd people? To the world, for sure. Maybe even to some believers. We hope not. But in any case, it's about our relationship to the living God, and to the Savior he's provided. May we recognize this is a holy feast, set apart. May we treat it that way. And in treating it that way, may we find glorious delight that Christ has come near to us. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We acknowledge it's countercultural and it's counter to our sinful nature. And so we need your help and we need your grace to value the cross of Christ as we should, to love our Savior as we ought. Help us, Lord, to examine our own hearts, to turn from our sin, to rejoice in the precious blood of Christ that covers over, and to be wholly committed to walking with you. We pray, Lord, for our elders in that difficult work of church discipline. We pray you give them courage, you give them conviction, and that you will give them gracious words to lead the erring back to Christ Jesus. Bless us as a congregation to stand firm together. May Satan not divide us. May our Lord's Supper Fellowship not cover over the divisions among us, but may the divisions be wiped out by your Spirit. 
that we might love each other at the table and in life and in all of our worship, have a concern for each other, put one another ahead of ourselves, and learn more and more to magnify the grace of the Lord in his church. In his name we ask these things. Amen.